0: Good morning, church family. Happy New Year. We are now in 2024. Students, welcome back. I love you. I missed you. It's good to see you. Um, We are starting a new study through the book of Exodus for the next several months. I'm very excited to to have the privilege of kicking us off this morning. The title of the series is Holy and Near, and these are themes that we will see throughout this book. It is somewhat of a paradox when we think of holiness, of God's separateness from us, how he is unlike us. He made all things. He is ruler and sovereign over all things as creator of all things, but he is also pure and good and holy in his character, in his essence. We are fallen people. There is a separation that exists between sinful people and the holy God, and yet he has drawn near to his people, and, and he wants to have community with his people, and he gives us guidelines through this book that we'll see of the means by which sinful people can come and relate to the holy God. Think of how uh, Genesis begins. Adam and Eve are in the garden, and when they sin, they are kicked out of the garden. There is a separation that then exists throughout the rest of Genesis. But God is faithful. He's working with the stories of the patriarchs, but there still is this background weight of just the separation that exists. We, we're not in the garden anymore. Exodus is kind of the next chapter in the story. And it, it really begins this, this ministry of separation. But, but again, just highlighting God's nearness to his people. Just to give an overview of the book, the first 15 chapters or so, that's really the Exodus. That's kind of the famous part. If you are maybe of my generation, the Prince of Egypt, images come to your mind. Maybe if you're my parents' generation, maybe Charlton Heston comes to mind. That's all in the first 15 chapters. There's 25 more chapters in this book. Most of the book is after the famous part. The first half, the first 20 chapters are all narrative in, in genre. And then the second half are primarily law, it's rules and regulations. And there's so, it's, it's so rich, there's so much that we're going to see in this book. God introduces himself with a personal name. He judges sin in righteousness and justice. He shows that substitution is the means of deliverance in the Passover. He uses what is weak to defeat the strong. He provides for his people. He delivers for a purpose. So again, there's that narrative first half, and then all of these rules and regulations in the second half. It's because God doesn't just deliver his people to some neutral state. He delivers them to be worshipers and there's a right way in which we need to worship God. The office of mediator is established and highlighted as as essential. But we also see that Moses is an imperfect mediator. and Whenever he messes up, we have this longing of we need a better mediator. We're going to go very fast, relatively, through this book. We're going to be here the next several months but it's a long book it's 40 chapters kevin de young i think preached through it in like three years you can go very slow if you want to there's a lot to pull out but um, just considering the makeup of our church savannah is a very transient town if uh, we have a lot of young professionals college students um, if if someone is a member of bull street for five to ten years that's that's wonderful and beautiful but I don't want to spend half of that time in one book of the Bible. So we're going to go pretty fast. Some sermons we might cover a couple chapters at a time. Uh, wanting to be faithful to the text, encapsulating a, a narrative arc. But we can take, you know, most of the plagues all in one sermon. We can take a lot of the, uh, the rules for how the tabernacle should be set up. A lot of that can be done in one sermon. So uh, some of these sermons will be... Maybe not what we're used to, but that's okay. It's the Word of God and it's good for us. This morning, I'm covering chapters one and two to really set the groundwork for the book. How how does Moses, who is writing this book, how does he introduce the themes that we're going to see? We're not going to cover every theme that is present in the book, but there are a few that stand out that I think are highlighted in these first couple chapters. If you will allow your eyes to go down to your copy of God's word, uh, you can see that in the beginning of the book, there is this strong connection to the book of Genesis. Moses is picking up where he left off in, in authoring Genesis as well. He speaks of the tribes, or the, the sons of, of Israel, who are now the heads of tribes. He lists all 12 of those sons. Joseph was already in Egypt in verse uh, 5. Remember, that is how Genesis ends. Joseph had gone down, and then his family had come down to join him to escape the famine. We're picking up right where we left off. The, the promises, the covenant promises to Abraham, are being fulfilled. It says that in verse 7, the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. That should take us back to the beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve were commanded to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth with image bearers. Here we see that Israel is being fruitful and multiplying. They are growing and fulfilling that, that That blessing that promise that the Lord had established in Genesis and yet it's not all roses verse 8 says now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph so we're not in Genesis anymore the people have multiplied they have expanded but they've expanded in slavery and oppression How is God going to be faithful to his promise now? Do you see the dilemma? There is foreshadowing in these first two chapters of things that are to come. God is always working toward his purposes. Even if it doesn't look like it at first, he is always working in his gracious, sovereign intentions, God is going to continue to be faithful to His promises and bring those promises to fruition in the most awe-inducing ways imaginable. He will get the glory. My prayer is that this morning we would be comforted by this reminder that God is always faithful to His promises but when we see that he is greater than any earthly threat, that he is always working, always providing, even when it doesn't seem like it, I pray that we would find comfort in that and worship him for that, that we would give glory to our God, who is our deliverer. Moses was the exact deliverer that the children of Israel needed, and at the right time, the Lord has provided an, a deliverer even greater than Moses in Jesus. He has identified with us in our suffering and delivered us from sin and death. With that being said, if you would stand with me and flip over to the end of the passage we're looking at this morning, Exodus chapter 2, and we'll read verses 23 to 25, and then we'll go back and dig through the passage as we go. Hear the word of the Lord. During those many days, the king of Egypt died... And the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, and God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. Let's pray. Father, we... Know that you are omnipresent, we believe that and yet in practice I think sometimes we often think that you are far from us. We know that you are here with us at this time, you are present, you are near to us. We are your people gathered together to hear from your word. Would you reveal yourself to us through your word? In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. There are three ways I want to highlight that God will get the glory through these couple chapters. God is glorified when he defeats his enemies. God is glorified when he provides for his people. And God is glorified when he relates to his people. And just to let you into my mind how I'm thinking of this even as an outline, because this is also the first sermon introducing these themes of of Exodus, I'm not even necessarily thinking of those three points as like, we're talking about this and now we're talking about number two and now we're talking about number three, but they really grow on each other. We'll talk about how God is glorified when he defeats his enemies. But then even when we talk about him providing for his people, the way he's providing for Israel is that he's going to defeat their enemy. And the way that he's providing for them, ultimately the most beautiful way is that he's relating to his people. So. Again, don't think of it as A, B, and C. Think of it as just this this growing idea, this growing reality that God's glory is our best good. Sometimes we say that, that's a very Christianese kind of phrase of like, well, it's for His glory and it's for our good. We know that those things are true. I'm concerned as I study that sometimes I can say those words and I even think of that in a kind of coincidental kind of way. Like good thing the Lord lucked out and what was most glorifying to him also happened to be best for us. Looking at how God reveals himself in Exodus, our blessing and our provision is not incidental to God's glory. Those things don't just happen to work out. It's more more glorious than that. It's more beautiful than that. God's actions are directly connected to his character. They flow out of who he is. He is holy and good, and all that he does is righteous and just. And For his people, his actions are not incidentally for our blessing, they are in fact the way that we experience true blessing is by knowing Him at a deeper level. This motivates us to worship and this brings Him glory. Let's dive in. Let's go back to the beginning of Exodus and see first how God is glorified when He defeats His enemies. Let's read all of chapter 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. one of whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua. When you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are just not like the Egyptian women for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live." God will get glory over his enemies. And right here from chapter 1, Moses is leaving little breadcrumbs to show that that is going to happen. Ultimately, we will see Yahweh use marvelous supernatural means to get that victory. The Red Sea will split. There are going to be 10 plagues, he is going to demonstrate that he is a God unlike the gods of Egypt. He is the creator. He is in control of the very physical substance of, of the world. And yet, how this book starts is that he is using the least of these, some simple women who fear the Lord to shame this great, powerful King of Egypt. He doesn't need to bend the laws of physics in order to thwart the plans of an evil king. A couple midwives who fear the Lord more than Pharaoh thwart his plans of, of, of population control. It's ironic that he ends saying, Every son that is born to Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but every daughter you shall let live. Knowing the end of the story, it is the sons of Egypt who will end up drowning when God gets victory over Pharaoh and over Egypt. One thing to consider as we dive into this book, especially with the first half of the book being narrative, it is important to recognize that uh, not every narrative in the Bible is sometimes things are described, not necessarily prescribed, right? Description, not prescription. It's easy for us at this point in redemptive history to look at Egypt and see the connections and the the greater spiritual realities at play, saying that, yes, Jesus has freed us from slavery to sin. And we can almost think that that's all that Pharaoh and Egypt and Moses and Israel represent. It's important to remember that this is taking place in human history. Pharaoh was one of the most powerful men in the world. It is not nothing to say that a couple Hebrew midwives are highlighted, their names recorded for God's people for all time, thwarting his plans. God absolutely cares about the spiritual, and we will get there later in the sermon. But God is working through human history and through human agents, and He is deeply concerned with the affairs of the world. Even if it doesn't look like it, even if the people are still enslaved, the Lord is working, and He is often working through the means of His people. He will get glory over Pharaoh. God is also glorified as he provides for his people. Let's continue on into chapter 2. Now, a man from the house of Levi went and took as his wife, a Levite woman. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. When she could hide him no longer, she took for him a basket made of bulrushes and daubed it with bitumen and pitch she put the child in it and placed it among the reeds by the river bank. And his sister stood at a distance to know what would be done to him. Now the daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the river while her young women walked beside the river. She saw the basket among the reeds and sent her servant woman and she took it. When she opened it, she saw the child and behold, the baby was crying. She took pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews children. Then his sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call you a nurse from the Hebrew women to nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. So the girl went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, take this child away and nurse him for me and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. When the child grew older, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son. She named him Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. The Lord will provide for his people in all kinds of miraculous ways through this book. When they are exodusing, actually going out of Egypt, they plunder Egypt on the way. The people of Egypt are so eager to see them go that they give them gold and silver and clothing. The Lord provides for his people. Once they're in the wilderness, he is going to supernaturally provide for his people in giving them food and water out of the things of the wilderness, manna and water from the rock. Thinking of the second half of this book, the Lord is going to provide for his people the rules and regulations they need in order to live in community with the holy God. But before we get to any of that, first, the Lord provides a deliverer. Even when it seems like all is lost, the people are still in slavery. The Lord is working and he provides a deliverer. Moses is born. Again, there is a connection from here back to Genesis saying this is a continuation of the same story, but it's getting more specific. So back in verse 3, where it says that Moses' mother took for him a basket made of bulrushes. That word for basket in the Hebrew is teva. It's used 28 times in the Bible, two times here, and 26 times in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Our Bibles translate the word ark in Genesis 6, 7, 8, and 9. Just as Noah was provided as a kind of deliverer for all of humanity when the Lord judged the sin of people with a worldwide flood, We should see the connection here. It gets lost in translation a little bit because we're like, oh, how sweet, she put him in a basket. The Lord is providing for His people, a deliverer who just like if Noah and his family were lost, humanity would have been lost. If Moses is lost, Israel is going to be lost. That's, That's what we should read from this, that this is the man that God has set apart that he protected through the waters of the Nile. When other, other children perhaps were being drowned in the Nile, Moses is delivered and he is going to deliver the people of Israel. Not only does the Lord guard Moses' life in those moments that he's in the water, but again, look how God gets the glory over Pharaoh while also providing for Israel by providing for Moses. Who should find him but Pharaoh's daughter? What? It doesn't get better than that. The irony is just delicious. Anyone could have found this baby floating in the water and cared for him, and God could have still provided for him and cared for him and protected him. But of all people, the daughter of Pharaoh, who at this very moment is trying to control the population, his daughter comes upon him, sees him, has pity on him, and of all things to happen, ends up hiring Moses' biological mother to care for him. The Lord is providing for Moses. He's providing for Moses' mother. All of this is foreshadowing the ways that God enjoys, takes such delight in providing for his people. We are so needy as people. We have all kinds of physical, spiritual, relational needs. God cares about all of our needs. He is going to deliver them out of Egypt into the promised land. That is where redemptive history goes. But he also cares about our hearts. He also cares about the spiritual realities at the same time as the physical realities. Jesus fed people and healed them and taught them. And here's the thing if God doesn't provide for our most pressing needs then those other needs we have. Even if they're met in a fallen world, it doesn't ultimately matter. It can be very difficult for us to order our needs rightly. We can become blind to our greatest needs because we have so many needs, and sometimes the needs we have are urgent and pressing. I would just exhort you to to say that if you feel like the Lord is not meeting a need that you have this morning, if you feel like you are lacking something that you need, it can be helpful to remember that God cares about all of your needs but he has met your greatest need. If you're wondering if he cares about you because you need food or a place to stay or you desire a relationship to be made right, let's reorient our vision and remember the ways that he has, he has provided for our greatest need and because of that we can go from the greater to the lesser. How much more does, does the Lord care for our whole beings? He cares for his people and he is glorified when he provides for us. Finally, God is glorified when he relates to his people. And this ultimately, this is again, how we know that he cares for us is he doesn't just provide for us like some big dispenser of, of m- meeting needs. He draws near to us and he understands. Let's look again at the end of chapter two, and then we'll hop back to this middle section that we're skipping over. But look again at verse 23. During those many days, the king of Egypt died. We'll get to those many days in a second. Some time passes, Moses grows up. The people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew." The Hebrew uses four different words for groaning and crying here. It's the full spectrum. They are sighing, they are dejected, they are crying, they are crying out. They are pleading. They are petitioning. And this is all that the people have. Have you ever been at a place where all you have are your prayers? The Lord relates to His people. Verse 24 says that God heard their groaning and remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel and God knew. God hears. There's four different verbs that it uses here. First, it says that God hears their groaning. Such comfort can be had in just knowing Especially if you feel like all you have are your prayers, knowing that God is listening, the God of the universe hears your prayers. This is what David says in Psalm 6 verses 8 and 9. Depart from me, all you workers of evil, for the Lord has heard the sound of my weeping, the Lord has heard my plea, the Lord accepts my prayer. In that Psalm, he doesn't go on to say, and he answered all of my needs and said everything I asked for, he gave me. There's comfort that we find in just knowing that the Lord hears our plea and he accepts our prayer. Is it enough for you that the Lord hears you today? Can we be content with that? There is something therapeutic about being able to pour out our hearts before someone. In our modern age, in our modern therapeutic age, coming down from Freud, where the self is the governing power of the universe, that, that's why modern psychology therapy is so, is so interested in, well, just sit on the couch and, and spill it all out to your therapist. Because that's where we have placed culturally That's where our society has placed ultimate truth. If you can just say it enough, you'll eventually find what yourself needs and you can be helped. Praise the Lord. He is not just some deified therapist. He hears our prayers and that brings us comfort, but he does more than that. Hearing was the first verb that it listed. He acts. He doesn't just hear, he takes it all in. He hears, but then he does more. It says that God remembered his covenant. This remembering is not just like, oh yeah, I, that's right. I made a, Genesis 15, I made a covenant with Abraham. The Lord is all-knowing. He knows all things. He does not forget like we are capable of forgetting in our limited minds. This word is highlighting that he brings it to the front burner. He has not forgotten his covenant with Abraham. He has been faithful to it this whole time. But when he hears his people groaning and crying and complaining and being crushed, being oppressed, he sets his focus on the covenant that he made with Abraham. He sees God saw the people of Israel. So often seeing and eyes in scripture are speaking to a, a factual knowledge and an all encompassing factual knowledge. So think of apocalyptic literature that talks about creatures with eyes. It's, it's speaking to that, that they can see all things and that if they are serving God, how much more does he see all things? He knows all things that God would hear and understand and see you, speaks to the fact that He knows all of the details of your circumstance. He knows the details infinitely beyond the details that you know. Your perception of your own circumstances are limited to your perception. God sees all things happening at all times. Whatever you are facing, the Lord knows more about it than you do. He has seen it all. Nothing is hidden from his sight. And finally, this last verb, it gets translated in different ways in different translations, so I don't know. Yours might say something different, but it's a powerful word here that God saw the people of Israel and God knew. This ties everything else together. All of this relating that God is doing to His people, the hearing, the remembering His covenant, the seeing. It's wrapped up by His knowledge. This is a knowledge that leads to action. I like what the NLT translates. It says that, and God knew it was time to act. He has heard, He has remembered, He has seen, and he understands and empathizes in a way that now he is going to do something on behalf of his people. We see a type of relating to the people, identifying with the people in Moses. So let's back up now to verse 11 and read uh, where we left off with Moses. One day when Moses had grown up, He went out to his people and looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. When he went out the next day, behold, two Hebrews were struggling together, and he said to the man in the wrong, why do you strike your companion? He answered, who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and stayed in the land of Midian, and he sat down by a well. Now the priest of Midian had seven daughters, and they came and drew water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. The shepherds came and drove them away, but Moses stood up and saved them and watered their flock. When they came home to their father Ruel, he said, Again, with narratives in the Old Testament, it's important that we don't uh, overly simplify them or that we see things there that are not there. Um, You know, the seventh plague was hail, and they mocked Jesus saying, Hail, King of the Jews. So it's an allegory. No, no. Think about where we are in redemptive history. We are on a road that is leading to Jesus, and there are road signs along the way. And so. Let's look at what road signs are here in Moses as an example of a kind of deliverer, not perfect. It makes us long for a better one, but he is a kind of deliverer. First, he identifies with his people. Think about how easy it could have been for Moses to just grow up in the lap of luxury. He would have been educated where his people were slaves physical labor, he would have had all of the foods that just the riches of the world were available to him. He grew up as Pharaoh's grandson, all of the benefits of royalty without any of the pressures. And yet it says one day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, went out, that word is used over a hundred times throughout this book. Exodus, he goes out from the royal court and eventually he's even going to go out of Egypt itself. He went out and looked on their burdens and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. Moses identifies with the suffering of his people Now Moses takes things into his own hands and looks this way and that and kills the Egyptian. There's not a lot of commentary given to that action. It just gives it to us. So we don't know all the details of the circumstance, but based on where things go, I think we can rightly interpret that he probably shouldn't have done that. But it's not all bad because when he flees, when he goes out of Egypt, he flees into the land of Midian, the wilderness. Again, God's preparing his people. He's providing for his people. It'll come in really handy for the children of Israel that they have a guy who spends 40 years in the wilderness a little later, but we'll get there. He comes to the wilderness and the priest of Midian has seven daughters, shepherdesses. They're taking care of his flock. They come and they water. and. Other shepherds come along and they're trying to, to shoo them off. Shepherds, shepherding was very common in these days, um, but they, shepherds themselves were kind of looked at as like the scruffy kind of low lives. And so it's not surprising that these daughters take a flock, they're trying to water them. Some other shepherds come in and it seems based on their father's question later of how'd you get back so quickly? It seems like they have a habit of doing this. Other shepherds come in, they're taking advantage of these girls. Moses is just as righteously zealous as he was when he killed the Egyptian, but he gets rid of these shepherds. He cares for these daughters of the priest. He waters their flock. Moses is... A good relator to his people. And because of that, we can see how God is an even greater relator to his people. Letting scripture interpret scripture, the author of Hebrews in chapter 11, the Hall of Faith, in talking about Moses says this is Hebrews eleven twenty four to 27 by faith Moses when he was grown up refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt for he was looking to the reward by faith he left Egypt not being afraid of the anger of the king For he endured as seeing him who is visible, who is invisible. That is so helpful that the Lord gives us this other passage in the New Testament to see this account through even more detail. It says that Moses considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. Obviously, Moses doesn't know the name Jesus. He doesn't know the details of how redemption is going to happen. And yet when he by faith demonstrates a zeal for his people and when he identifies with them in their suffering and spurns the treasures of Egypt, he is foreshadowing the ways that God relates to his people most clearly in the person of Jesus. The Lord is always working. He is always working. He is always providing. And when the time was right, when the time was fulfilled in Mark 1, the kingdom of heaven was at hand, Jesus came. Though he was rich, yet for your sake, he became poor. Jesus identifies with the suffering of his people. and find grace to help in time of need. What needs do you have this morning? They have all been met in Jesus. Through Jesus, the Lord is most fully able to hear and see the the groaning and the complaining of sinful people and remember his covenant and act on it and know No. He knows. He knows because Jesus put on human flesh. He has experienced hunger and tiredness and betrayal and temptation. There is no need we have that Jesus has not experienced first. And through him, the Lord provides everything that we need. Church, be comforted and worship our God knowing that he is always faithful to his promises. He is greater than any earthly threat. He is working and providing even if it doesn't look like it on the surface. Jesus is a deliverer better than Moses and he has identified with us in our suffering and delivered us from sin and death. solely Deo Gloria. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for delivering your people out of Egypt. Because from your people came the Messiah, came the great deliverer, came the prophet greater than Moses. I ask that you would help us to worship you rightly. If there is someone here this morning who does not know you as savior, as deliverer, I ask that these words I've shared would show them a picture of the comfort and the blessing that is available through your salvation, through your deliverance. Thank you for the ways that you care for us. Thank you for sending your son, Jesus, to be our atoning sacrifice. And now through the Holy Spirit, we have um, all the help that we need. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name, amen.